Good evening. Um, this is going to pop. Sorry. All right. Uh, I want to apologize ahead of time. You may be wondering why Ed sounds like a high schooler with a retainer in. <laughs> um, the Lord has seen fit to give me um, something that's literally on the tip of my tongue. It's not on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of it. It's literally on there, which Google tells me is a swollen taste bud. And I asked the Lord to take it away before tonight, and he said no. So as always, we trust in his perfect will. And thank you for bearing with my unique accent tonight. We'll be in Malachi 3:16 through 18. Malachi 3:16 through 18. You can remain seated or you can stand as your conscience leads you, but whatever the case, listen to the word of God with reverence in Malachi 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 6. Malachi 3, 16 through 4, 6. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We ask, Father, that as we navigate it, that as we strive to be faithful in reading it and understanding it, that you would help us by your spirit to do just that. Help us to rightly understand this and apply it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. There are some signs that some Christians hold up in public when they're street preaching, for example, that I used to find distasteful. I used to find them unloving. And I'm speaking in particular of those signs that speak of God's judgment. Here are some that I found in some photos online in preparation for this. Destruction is coming. Turn to Jesus. God is angry with the wicked every day. Jesus saves from the wrath of God. God hates sin. Trust Jesus. Jesus Christ is coming. Repent of your sin. Now, I used to be of the mindset that we really shouldn't 
preach like that. We shouldn't use signs like that, I used to think. It sounds unloving. It isn't winsome. But the reality is that we really do need to speak like that. We do bring good tidings. We bring good news of salvation in Jesus Christ through our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But that good news is only good news to people who are aware of the impending judgment of God. It is the preaching of judgment that time and time again throughout history has led people to repentance. Think about Jonah's message that Pastor Corey preached. Was Jonah's message about salvation? No. Jonah did not say a word about God's mercy. He didn't even want mercy for the Ninevites. All he did was preach about God's judgment. And the response from Nineveh was to repent and hope that God would be merciful toward them, and he was. In Acts chapter 2, you might say, well, Jonah's Old Testament, Pastor Ed. Well, in Acts 2, Peter preaches judgment. He tells them about this day of the Lord. And he tells the crowd, you guys, you guys crucified the Messiah. Now, what does that imply to you? If you're hearing about the judgment of God and you're in that crowd as somebody who was in that crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, what will your response be? Well, their response was they were cut to the heart and they asked the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter gives them the good news. In 1741, moving further into church history, there's a famous sermon that you may have heard of and even read by Jonathan Edwards, and it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And just like it sounds from the title, Edwards preached about sin. He preached about hell. He preached about judgment. And as he was preaching, people were shrieking. They were tearing hymn books in half. They were crying out, and they were asking what they could do to avoid this hell that Edwards was preaching about. Josh Moody writes this, The crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. Many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. So again, throughout history, we see time and time again that God uses the preaching of judgment to turn people to repentance and faith. And so we do need to speak like this. We do. We need to speak like God speaks, and God speaks like this in the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament. Our focus is going to be on the final words of this final book, and so let's first give a brief overview of, of Malachi so far before we get to our passage. In the book of Malachi, we see that that there are people in Malachi's time who are questioning God's love. They're looking at their circumstances, political circumstances, economic, spiritual, and they doubt whether God loves them. Malachi exposes their doubts. He answers their doubts, and he turns the table on them and tells them that what should be questioned is not God's love for Israel, but Israel's love for God. He points out to them how, how they had been guilty of dishonoring God, and the evidence of that was that they were bringing 
they're, uh, I don't want to use the word janky. Uh, what's they're, they're animals that were blemished. They were bringing imperfect animals to sacrifice to God, and that was evidence. That was evidence of their lack of love for him. They were begrudging in their sacrifices. And then God, through Malachi, even uh, rebukes the priests for letting that happen. Priests, that is literally your job. Your job is to make sure that these sacrifices that are being brought are unblemished, that they are done with the right heart, that they're done with the right sacrifice. Their job was to ensure that the worship of God was proper and the sacrifices were appropriate. And then God, through Malachi, brings up Israel's unfaithfulness among themselves. In particular, he brings up marriage. And, and because they were unfaithful in the covenant of marriage, they were thus unfaithful in their covenant with God. The examples that he gives is that they were, A, marrying outside of Israel, which is not a racist thing. The issue is, who do the other nations worship? They worshiped other gods. Why are you marrying people who worship other gods? And just by way of aside, Christian, why are you dating someone who worships another god? Why are you wanting to marry someone who doesn't worship your god? It's unfaithful not only to yourself, but it's unfaithful to God. So that's, and in addition to marrying pagan, pagans, they were also just allowing divorce just because. Because you didn't like your spouse. You were divorcing your spouse. So their unfaithfulness in this God-established covenant of marriage was unfaithfulness to God himself. After that, Malachi accuses the people of wearying the Lord with their complaints, so many complaints. Their issue was that the wicked were prospering. They were looking at these other nations who denied Yahweh, and boy, they were doing great. So God must have delighted in them, they thought. God must have been unjust, they thought. At this point, they had been back from exile for some time, and they rebuilt the temple. They had rebuilt the temple as they were told to do, and it seems that God's promises to them of prosperity, of international prominence, of wealth, had failed. They were still experiencing oppression from other people. They were still impoverished. And so it looks like God's promises had failed. And also, they had promised, as we saw in Haggai, that the glory of God would return to this temple that they just rebuilt in an even greater way than when Solomon built his temple. And even though they did rebuild it according to God's instructions, they didn't experience what Solomon experienced at the building of the first temple. So what's up with that, they thought. There was no visible manifestation of God's presence in the temple in Malachi's day. But Malachi tells them that that won't always be the case. He tells them in chapter 3, verse 1, that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And by the way, yeah, amen, I'm hearing the name of Jesus, praise God. This was fulfilled, at least in part, when Simeon saw the infant Jesus in the temple. And, and Simeon says in Luke 2.32 that Jesus had come for glory to your people Israel. 
They wanted to see God's glory in the temple. And in baby Jesus in the temple, he had come for glory to your people, Israel. Malachi then goes back to talk about Israel's half-hearted offerings. It wasn't just the priest's fault. Yeah, he laid into the priests pretty good, but it was the whole nation's. When they came back from exile in Babylon, they did build an altar. But remember, as we learned in Haggai, they, they stopped rebuilding the temple. And they were negligent in their offerings. So as we get closer to our passage, Malachi goes back to the people's complaint in the beginning. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Malachi 3, 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. So the arrogant are blessed. People who are doing evil prosper. They are putting God to the test, and they're getting away with it. Why even serve God then, is their question, is their complaint. If those people are going to do well, if they're going to prosper, if they're going to get away with testing you, why even serve God? What's the point of it? And that leads us to our passage tonight. And in our passage, we're going to meditate together on the judgment of God. And we're going to look at the judgment of God from four angles. Number one, that God is going to spare those who fear him. Number two, he will destroy the wicked. Number three, he will vindicate his people. And number four, he has sent a prophet. Now, if you weren't fast enough, don't worry. We're going to take those each in turn. So let's look at each of those, starting with number one. God will spare those who fear him. So after God explained to the people how their words had been hard against him, we look at verse 16 and we read this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. We've spoken before about, about what it means to fear the Lord. But just by way of review, fearing the Lord means giving him the reverence that he is due. Being rightly and appropriately fearful of Almighty God simply because of who he is. It's a fear of God that leads to wisdom, that leads to right living before the fearsome God. So whoever this is, those who fear the Lord, we read in verse 16, spoke with one another. We don't know exactly what they said to each other, but we can infer from the context of the passage that whatever they were talking about was good, was pleasing to God. They probably, after hearing God's words to them, recognized the errors of their ways, and they were discussing that with each other. They were repenting to each other before the Lord. They probably encouraged each other to think rightly going forward. Whatever it was, we know that it was God-honoring, because we look at the middle of verse 16, and we read this, Yahweh paid attention and heard them. He paid attention and heard them. This is in contrast to what the complainers were saying before. Clearly, God was paying attention and heard what the complainers were saying before. He heard their complaints clearly, and he reiterated what he heard back to them. 
But that means that he also heard what the God-fearers said. He also heard what they said, too. And we would do well to remember that. We should definitely be careful not to ever speak sinfully because we know that God hears everything that we say. But at the same time, we should also be encouraged that when we are speaking rightly, when we speak about God to other people, when we are speaking well of him, when we're speaking the truth in love to other people, God also hears that. And he's pleased with what we're saying. We then read in verse 16, And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. What is, what is a book of remembrance? Well, in several places in Scripture, we actually see a reference to God's book. Moses asks in Exodus 32, 32, that if God will not have mercy on the people, that he, his name would also just be blotted out of God's book. In Psalm 56, verse 8, we, we hear the psalmist talking about God keeping track of all of the psalmist's tears in his book. The book of Revelation speaks of names that are written in a book of life. All of this is, is just an allegorical way of talking about what God remembers. Maybe one day we're going to learn that there was literally a physical book in heaven, but the point is that God keeps track of everything. He keeps track of it all. And here in Malachi, God is keeping track of those who feared him, those who esteemed his name, the verse says. What does it mean to esteem his name? It means to honor him. It means to have a high regard for him. And that's the opposite of those who are questioning God's justice, questioning God's love earlier in this book. And then in verse 17, verse 17, we see why their names were written down in this book of remembrance. Verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. That's a curious phrase, they shall be mine. Aren't, aren't God's people already his? Why is it in the future tense? They shall be mine. It's because this is pointing forward to a future event. It's pointing forward to the day when God makes up his treasured possession, verse 17 says. Makes up his treasured possession. Israel was supposed to be God's treasured possession. Exodus 19.5 says this, God says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. It was conditional. If you do this, you will be my treasured possession. And of course, they failed to do that. They failed to obey his voice. They didn't keep his covenant. And so, instead of the nation of Israel being his treasured possession, instead, he would gather up a treasured possession from within Israel, but also from every corner of the earth. His people, which right now is scattered all over the world, praise God, will one day be gathered together. And the one who guarantees it is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, the commander of all of heaven's armies, 
God's rescue mission is planned. And when he executes it, he will bring all of his people home without fail. When he makes up his treasured possession, he says in verse 17, And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Later in this passage, he's going to explain uh, what he's going to spare them from, and that is his, his own righteous wrath. But the idea behind this word spare is, is having compassion on somebody and therefore not giving them what they deserve. And so a man, they may have a, a son who does wrong, like, for example, the, in the parable of the prodigal son, he may have a son that does something wrong, but he may spare him that punishment that he deserves because that son is otherwise an obedient son. That's the picture that God is, is painting here. God would spare his treasured possession like a father spares his son. And we see the result of that in verse 18. Verse 18. Then once more ye shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Remember, remember the complaint from before. It doesn't seem like God even makes a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. He's blessing the ungodly while we're over here suffering. And here's the answer. When God comes to make up his treasured possession, when he comes to gather all of his people together, then we will see the distinction we will see the sheep and we will see the goats. We will see the elect and the reprobate. We will see the righteous and the wicked, the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The distinction will be made clear. So to the question, God, why do you let your people suffer and let the wicked prosper? Answer, you'll see. You'll see. When God spares his people, he will make the distinctions more clear. Now that, all of this by itself, shouldn't give us much hope. By itself. Why? Because if you got to heaven's imaginary gate, this isn't going to happen, but just use this analogy. You go to heaven, you go to the gate, the gatekeeper asks you, did you fear God? Did you serve him? Were you righteous? The answer to those questions would probably be, uh, sometimes? Okay, the gatekeeper asks, well, at least in the moment you died, were you fearing him? Were you serving him? Were you being righteous in what you were doing? Uh... So on one hand, we should rejoice that God spares those who fear him. But on the other hand, that should give us some trepidation. That should give us some fear. Are we more like the complainers before this passage, or are we more like those who feared God and spoke to one another? I'm going to just let that tension linger <laughs> until a later point in the sermon. But for right now, meditate on the fact that God will spare those who fear him. That's the first angle we're going to look at. The second angle that we're going to look at is this. He will destroy the wicked. He will destroy the wicked. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This day is terrifying. It's a day that, verse 1 says, is burning like an oven. Burning like an oven. The other day, uh, during my devotional time here, I, I decided to go out and take a stroll in this neighborhood right next to us over here. And as I was walking in the Vegas heat and in our monsoon humidity, I was moved to stop and thank the Lord for this heat because this heat reminded me of the wrath that he spared me from. Now, what if we put a step in between? God, thank you that at least it's not like a 450-degree oven out here. Can you imagine, can you imagine being put into a 450-degree <laughs> oven? You, you might could actually imagine it because if you've ever baked anything, you've opened the oven door and you've immediately felt the intense heat coming from the oven when you're just putting something in. Or, or you might know the sting of touching, accidentally touching the metal inside the oven when you're taking something out. So you can imagine it. Nobody wants to be inside a 450-degree oven. The day of judgment is described in chapter 4, verse 1, as burning like an oven. R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord, used to tell a story of, of how someone asked him, do you think that hell is literally a fire? And he would say, no. And when he would say no, they would be relieved by that. But he told them that they shouldn't be relieved because fire is a lesser picture of a greater judgment that hell will actually be. Fire is nothing. Ovens are nothing compared to what people actually deserve and what they will actually receive for their sins. The day is coming burning like an oven, verse 1 says, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Those words were used earlier in the complaint of the people, arrogant and evildoers. And what this means is that the arrogant and the evildoers who seem like they've been getting away with murder and they've even been blessed by it, it seems like, or blessed for it, all of those people will be burned up like chaff. They'll be burned up like straw. God would, verse 1 says, set them ablaze. Can you picture that? God intends for you to picture that, otherwise he wouldn't have written it in his book. He intends for you to picture his setting the arrogant and the evildoers ablaze. It's terrifying. But we also understand how that could be good news to the oppressed. Consider, for example, uh, Saving Private Ryan. If you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. In the opening scene, countless Allied soldiers are just mowed down by Nazi machine guns coming from the beaches of Normandy. And eventually, some soldiers are able to make it past the gunfire and make it through the barrage, and, and a soldier engages a flamethrower into the machine gun bunker, setting the Nazis on fire. And one of the soldiers shouts, Don't shoot! Let him burn! 
And on one hand, that's awful. It's terrifying. But on the other hand, we understand the sentiment. It's justice. Those Nazis had just mercilessly gunned down a multitude of young men, friends of these young men who had survived. The burning was justice. And that's why God's promise of the day of the Lord is encouraging to his people. Not only will he spare his people, but he will also utterly destroy those who opposed him and oppressed his people. It's justice. We long to see justice done. He will set them ablaze, verse 1 says, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Imagine a tree or a bush getting so burned up that there is just nothing left. No root, no branch, and so thorough will be God's judgment. Now at this point, we need to do a brief apologetic against something called annihilationism, a defense against annihilationism. If you were to look at just this verse in Malachi by itself, then it would seem like God simply destroys his enemies once for all, and then they're gone. But that's not how the whole of Scripture teaches God's judgment. In Revelation 20, for example, verse 10, we see Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, they're cast into the lake of fire, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. And later in verse 15, unbelievers are likewise cast into that lake of fire. We gather to be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Matthew 25, 46, Jesus more clearly says, he describes hell as eternal punishment as opposed to eternal life. So just as life is eternal for the believer, so the punishment will be eternal for those who do not turn to Christ. Now I know that can be difficult for us to hear. It can be difficult for us to believe because it's awful to think of somebody being punished for all eternity. But we need to realize that eternal punishment is the just punishment for sin. Why? Because sin is against the infinite and eternal God. We know this. The greater the one sinned against, the greater the punishment will be. So if, for example, uh, Brother Caleb were to come up here and just slap me across the face because he's offended by this, I would forgive him. Y'all would forgive him, and we would move on. If I were to approach a police officer and try to slap him, I could be tased or shot for assaulting a police officer. If you go up to the president with the intention of slapping him, you may not make it to the president. So you see, the greater the person, the greater the rank of someone that you're sinning against, the greater the commensurate punishment will be. And we're talking about sinning against the greatest one in the universe. And not only has a sinner sinned once against God, but he has sinned against God all of his life. Every day of his life, he has sinned against Almighty God. He knows it in his heart. He knows what's some of what's right and wrong, and his conscience becomes seared, and he sins against God. I can't keep track of how many times I've sinned in my life, and neither can you. Furthermore, the sinner 
sinned against God in spite of God's kindness on him. God had allowed them to live. God had allowed them to receive countless blessings from him. Food, clothing, shelter, children, friends, fortune. And despite all of those blessings that should have turned them in gratitude to God, they ignored him and they chose to worship other gods of their own liking. They did all of that against a kind and eternal God. So annihilationism, the false teaching that people just cease to exist at judgment, as much as that might soothe our misinformed consciences, is false. And as hard as it may be for us to swallow, the eternal punishment of fire is the just judgment for sinning against an eternal God. Question. Do you want to avoid that day that is coming burning like an oven? Do you desire to be spared from being turned to stubble, being set ablaze together with the arrogant and the evildoers? If your answer is yes, stay tuned. But for right now, meditate on the facts that God will spare those who fear him and that he will destroy the wicked. Thirdly, he will vindicate his people. He will vindicate his people. In contrast with those who, uh, who were justly set ablaze by God, we read in the beginning of verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Remember that, that such people, those who feared God's name, were written down in a book of remembrance to be spared right? In the Bible, the person and his name are so intertwined that those terms are used interchangeably. So if you fear God's name, you fear God, and vice versa. For those who fear God, verse 2 tells us, the sun of righteousness shall rise. That is an awesome picture. In Malachi's time, and in our own time, it seems like that we are living in the darkness of night, and oh God, how we long for the sunrise. The world understands this concept. The song from Annie tomorrow says this, when I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick up my chin and grin and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. So you got to hang on till tomorrow, come what may. The world understands the concept. Darkness, bad, gloomy, sunshine and light, joy and relief. God's people right now are stuck in a night that's gray and lonely. But on that day, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise. And there are two in the New Testament who are described as light. One of those is the church when Jesus says that you are the light of the world. But first and foremost, the light is Jesus Christ. In John 8, verse 12, he says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Luke chapter 1, a little more on the nose, verses 78 through 79, Zechariah sings about the tender mercy of our God, whereby the 
sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace, the sunrise. This son of righteousness is talking about Jesus, or at the very least, what God would accomplish through Jesus. Christian interpreters throughout history have looked at Malachi and read son of righteousness, talking S-U-N, like, a, like the star in the center of our solar system, son of righteousness, They've applied it to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we sang, and hark the herald angels sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's what Malachi 4.2 says. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. When you talk about the wings of the sun... That's probably talking about the rays of the sun, which when you look at the sun long enough, you can see that the rays kind of look like wings around it. I don't recommend staring at the sun, but you can Google it. His rays of light are going to bring healing into this world, or rather have been bringing healing into this world. The Old Testament often refers to physical healing as a metaphor for a spiritual healing. And that's why Isaiah writes, in Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes we are, what? We're healed. The end of verse 2 continues, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Imagine young calves, they're in their stall, they're sleeping at night, but when the sun rises, they come out leaping. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Again, it's, it's hard for us to understand why treading on the ashes of the wicked sounds like a positive thing. But remember, this is in the context of God's people who have been for centuries oppressed by other nations. As we've been going through the minor prophets, we've heard about the terrible, terrible things that the Assyrians did. And then the Babylonians did to God's people after them. And that helps us to understand and appreciate the phrase, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. God will have burned them up in justice. The idea here is that God's people would be vindicated. Right now, they're suffering. While the wicked seem to be prospering while they're suffering, but, but one day, God would reverse that. He would judge the wicked, and he would spare those who fear him. And those who had previously been tread on by the wicked would now be the ones doing the treading. If you're one of God's people, you know what it's like to be tread on. You know what it's like to be demeaned, to be insulted, to be excluded, just because you believe in the God of the Bible. And we're, we're knowing that more and more as we move away from a cultural Christianity here in America. And some Christians know what it's like to be assaulted for being Christian, know what it's like to even be murdered for being a Christian. But one day, we will be vindicated. We who have been treated ingloriously will be glorified. 
But then again, we're revisited by this lingering question. Am I one who fears God's name? In fact, we read in verse 4 of chapter 4, an implied requirement of being spared. Here's how you get spared. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. If you want to be spared God's judgment, then you need to fear God and keep his commandments, which he delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai, a.k.a. Horeb. You need to keep those statutes and rules. You need to stop giving half-hearted sacrifices and give worthy ones. You need to go back to covenant faithfulness in your marriages and beyond that. And you need to, I forgot to mention this, you need to stop robbing God of your tithes. Uh, Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. Remember the law. So, again, if we're just reading Malachi by itself at face value, we should not be so confident that we will be spared. Our fear of God and our obedience to God have more ups and downs than the U.S. economy. Left with Malachi's oracle up to this point just by itself, we would walk away here thinking, well, we need to obey God's law lest we perish. And that's why our fourth point is the most important. Well, first, we need to meditate on these angles of God's judgment. God will spare those who fear him. He will destroy the wicked, and he will vindicate his people. Now, here's what makes all of that good news for us. Number four, he has sent a prophet. He has sent a prophet. Verses five and six provide an awesome conclusion, not only for Malachi and not only for the minor prophets, but a conclusion for the entire Old Testament. This prophet, Malachi, was the last book that was written before God stopped sending prophets to Israel until John the Baptist. So before the 400 plus year of period of silence, these verses were the last ones that God gave to Israel. We read in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now this is interesting. Elijah was one of two people in the Old Testament who didn't die. God just took him up in a chariot of fire. And so it makes sense that people were wondering, maybe Elijah will actually come back in the flesh. Maybe he'll ride back down in that chariot of fire. And that's why in John chapter 1, verse 21, the priests ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Also, interestingly, John the Baptist answers that question, I am not. But Jesus says in Matthew eleven fourteen about John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So what's probably going on here is that when John the Baptist says that he's not Elijah, what he's saying is, I'm not Elijah in the flesh. I'm not a reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. In fact, Elijah himself does show up in the Gospels during the transfiguration of Jesus. What's going on in Malachi is not that God would literally send Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, but that he would send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. The angel Gabriel says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, he, 
John the Baptist, will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So the prophet that God would send was not Elijah himself, but someone who would be Elijah-like. Okay, you follow? Elijah was, was the prophet in the Old Testament most prominent in calling people to repentance, and that's the kind of prophet that God would send. If you're still not convinced, that, that wouldn't be the only time in the Old Testament where a man is used to talk about somebody else coming after him. So for example, Jeremiah 30, verse 9 says, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. David is not talking about King David who had been in the grave, but is talking about the Messiah. Okay? Ezekiel 34 and 37 do the same thing. So, God would send Elijah, someone in the spirit of Elijah, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Oh, this is such good news. Hear this? This is such good news. The, the great and awesome day of the Lord that was described as burning like an oven was coming sometime in the future. And only those who were righteous and feared God and served God would be spared. But remember, we don't think that we fall into that category, not perfectly. So before God would enact the day of the Lord, first he would send a prophet. What a merciful God we have. He could have simply just judged the world and have been done with it. But instead, he sends a prophet. What would that prophet do? Verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and their hearts of children to their fathers. That's an interesting phrase. Something that it means that it will turn the present generation of disobedient children back to the ways of their ancestors. But then the reason why that sounds weird to me is that the hearts of fathers to their children doesn't make much sense there. So others with whom I agree think that it's really talking about a reconciliation of a family, which is one indicator of something that would happen if God's people were brought back to repentance. I think that it's a metaphorical reference to Christ's ministry of reconciliation. What Christ has been doing and is continuing to do is uniting all things in him, reconciling everything. When the first Adam ate of the fruit and plunged the world into destruction, it brought disunity and brokenness. When Christ, the better Adam, came and died for sinners, he has since been bringing healing and unity to all who believe in him. The point is that the prophet in Malachi 4.6 would turn people to repentance. That's what John the Baptist did in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist was not the Messiah, but he paved the way for the Messiah. He called people to repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand. And then he introduced Jesus. As soon as he saw Jesus, he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. John the Baptist was the forerunner for Jesus the Messiah. And the reason that God sent this prophet is at the end of verse 6. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
God had the right to destroy everything and everyone. His people with whom he had covenanted had broken the covenant. They had thus forfeited the right to all of their covenant blessings. They incurred instead all of the covenant curses. But instead of utter destruction, God would send them Elijah. And that Elijah would pave the way for Christ. The reason why these last two verses are such good news for us is that within them, they contain the mystery of Christ. On their own, they don't really give us any gospel hope, except that children will be reconciled with their fathers and vice versa. But with the New Testament, we see how the mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist would come, and he would point people to Jesus Christ. Don't look at me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Look at Christ. And Jesus Christ would teach the people, no, you don't fear God. No, you don't serve God. No, you're not righteous. A lot of Jesus' teachings were just in that vein, uncovering for the people their lack of righteousness, their lack of fear. You think you're righteous. You think you deserve heaven, but you don't. And even you who are outwardly following God's law to the T plus, inside you're wicked, Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes. You need to be born again. You need to be recreated. And thanks be to God, that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. Whereas we haven't feared God perfectly, Jesus did for us. Whereas we haven't served God perfectly, Jesus did for us. Whereas we have not been righteous, Jesus was perfectly righteous. And under those conditions, he could be the Lamb of God who would take away our sins. And Jesus teaches that if we believe in him, our sins are forgiven. We are counted as righteous. And we will therefore be in that category of those who feared and served God in Malachi. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we will be those who are spared. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have seen the sun of righteousness risen with healing in its wings. We will tread down the wicked on the day when God acts. Through faith in Jesus Christ, it will be as if we kept the law perfectly, and we will thus be spared on the great and awesome day of the Lord. Thank God he sent Elijah the prophet. And thank God that he sent that prophet that would be greater than Moses, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our mediator. Thank God. This is a message that we need for ourselves. That God is going to destroy the wicked and that we were the wicked. We need that because the gospel of Jesus Christ is our very life. The more that we recognize the wrath that we deserved and were spared from through faith in Jesus Christ, the more we will rightly fear God and love him and live for him. The more that we'll be able to endure whatever suffering that we face on this world. The more we'll be able to worship him as he deserves. So we need this message for ourselves. It's also a message that we need for others. 
We cannot just preach grace and mercy. It doesn't make sense. Grace and mercy do not make sense without judgment. Knowing that there's a cure doesn't make sense if you don't know about the disease. Someone says, I got a cure for this. Oh, great. Good for you. But if you know that you have the disease and you're aware of the terrible side effects of the disease, then you will rejoice when you learn that there's a cure. We need to preach judgment. We have to warn people about God's wrath to come, and then we need to give them the way out that God has so graciously provided faith in Jesus Christ. So praise God for the grace and the mercy that he has had on us. Now share that grace with other people as you warn them before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this oracle of judgment. It's not typical for people to be grateful for judgment, but in it, we're reminded of the judgment that was brought on your son on our behalf. We're thankful, O Lord, that you have spared us. We don't deserve it. We are not those who have feared you or served you or have been righteous on our own. Instead, we, we have fallen into the category that there's none righteous, that no one seeks for you. And yet you came after us. You gave your son to die for us. Thank you, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would meditate on your judgment, not that we would live in terror of you, but that in reverent gratitude we would live for you in light of the mercy that you've had on us. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the boldness to share with others of this wrath to come, that we would plead with others out of love for them to turn to your Son, Jesus Christ, for forgiveness. If there's anyone here, Lord, who has not done that, we pray that your Spirit would do a mighty work in them even now. Bring them to your Son, Lord. Help them to see the truth of what we're saying. God, help us. Be glorified in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been awesome going through the minor prophets for you guys. Uh, if you've been through this, if you're interested, they're all they're posted online. Um, go Starting next week, Pastorolo is going to continue the series that he had left off on when we started the Minor Prophets series. So that's what will be going on starting next Wednesday, okay? Lord bless you and keep you. You're dismissed.